I heard this about uh, 45 years ago when I graduated from high school and I didn't like it. I did, really didn't want to hear it and I didn't want to believe it, but my teachers just kept reminding me, David, life is difficult. There's no way to avoid it, no way to get around it. It's always been true and it always will be true. So David, the best thing you can do is just get yourself ready for this. Prepare for this fact that life is always going to be a challenge. And here's one of the reasons why. They call it the rule of 21, meaning about every 21 minutes and about every 21 days, you can expect these two things to happen. About every 21 minutes, on average, sometimes less, sometimes more, but about every 21 minutes, you can expect some kind of an interruption. Phone call, text, email, knock on the door, somebody stops by the desk just to chat, there's a tap on the shoulder from your boss adding another assignment to your already heavy workload. Somewhere in the next 21 minutes, there'll be some kind of a detour. Something's going to pop up. Something's going to distract, pull you away, make it impossible for you to maintain your schedule and stay on task. And at times, I mean, to be honest, at times it's aggravating, it's irritating, but you can't do anything to prevent it. It's just a fact of life that somewhere in those 21 minutes, there's going to be an interruption of some kind, an interruption that's going to make your daily routine just a little more challenging. And then something else that's going to make your life difficult is this. About every 21 days, again, sometimes less, sometimes more, but on average, about every 21 days, something's going to go wrong. Something in the house will break down. Somebody in the family will get sick. Your child will get hurt or have an accident of some kind. Your pet will die. The tire will go flat. A deadline is missed. A, a, a trip gets canceled. Somewhere in the next 21 days, you're going to get hit with something you weren't expecting. It wasn't on the calendar, wasn't in the budget, just kind of came out of the blue. But somewhere in those next 21 days, you will get ambushed by some kind of a problem. And get this, when many times when these kind of things happen, it's got nothing to do with you and nothing to do with me. It's just the kind of world we live in. Our world is corrupt, it's broken down, it's not working right, and sometimes we get caught in the mess. So, you can be sure of this. About every 21 minutes, there's going to be an interruption. You're going to experience some kind of an interruption in your life. And about every 21 days, life will not go according to plan. And then you're thinking, wow, David, thanks for this wonderful news. But what adds to the challenge of all this, what makes all these things so difficult, what makes every one of those interruptions and every one of those emergencies so stressful for us is this. It's how we're made. We were made in the image of God, which means we were created to care. I mean, unless you're a sociopath, you know, somebody who gets their kicks out of hurting other people, you, you just really enjoy watching other people squirm in pain, or you're one of those kind of people who can see other people getting hurt and it just never bothers you. No sympathy, no twinge of guilt, it, it just doesn't phase you at all. And right away, when we see somebody acting like that, we know that's not right. That's not normal. People who are like that, people are sick. They're very, very sick. And why? Because it's going against the grain of the way we were made. Here's what's normal. We were created to care. We were made to help others. So every, one, every 21 minutes when one of those interruptions pops up, one of those unexpected requests comes barging in our lives, or every 21 days when you get hit with one of those emergencies, immediately, that means you're going to feel this tug on your heart. You're going to feel this pull on your emotions. Hey, here's a need. Should I help? I mean, we know we're human beings and we have limitations, so we can't help everybody, but we can help someone. So this interruption, this emergency, is this one of those I can help kind of moments? And knowing the right way to answer that question, knowing the right way to respond 
to that moment becomes a challenge for us. It creates a deep sense of tension in our souls. Now, with all of that as background, maybe you can better appreciate the story that I want to tell you. True story. January the 2nd, 2007, there's this 20-year-old student from Harvard who's now in New York City. He's in New York because he's going to the New York Film Academy. He's, he's taking some classes there. He has these dreams, big dreams. One day he wants to go to Hollywood and produce some movies. So the morning of January the 2nd, 2007, here's this 20-year-old student from Massachusetts. His name is Cameron Hollipeter. And he's standing on the platform there in the subway station waiting for the next train to arrive. He's on his way down to Union Square so can he, he can attend one of those classes. Anyways, he's standing on the platform. He has a seizure. Never had a seizure before. You talk about something coming out of the blue. He was not expecting this at all. Has a seizure. He falls to the ground. Eventually, he comes to. He gets back up and he thinks, wow, that was strange. Where did that come from? What was that all about? When he gets hit with another seizure. And this time when he falls, he falls off the platform and onto the tracks just as the lights of the next train appear at the end of the tunnel. Well, at the very moment this is going on, the very moment Cameron Hollipeter is having the seizure, a 50-year-old man by the name of Wesley Autry is now walking through the turnstiles, and he's coming through those turnstiles with his two little girls, ages six and four. They just spent the morning together, had a wonderful time together, but now they're down here to catch the subway, too, because he's in the process of taking his daughters back home. Going to leave them with mom because he needs to head off to work. He's a construction worker from Harlem, and he was trying to build a library there in Brooklyn. Anyways, he's coming through the turnstiles. Wesley Autry can see what is happening to Cameron Hollipetter. So right away, here's this challenge. Should I respond? Now, you put yourself in the shoes of Wesley Autry. He's got every excuse in the world not to get involved. I mean, he's got two girls to take care of, right? If he jumps into action and, and he's not successful in carrying out this rescue, Cameron, he gets hit by the train, he ends his life. These two little girls got to spend the rest of their days without a dad? That's not right. His first responsibility is take care of them. Not only that, Wesley Autry could be thinking to himself, I got nothing in common with this kid, this 20-year-old white kid from Harvard, a kid of wealth and privilege, and yet here I am, this middle-aged black man from Harlem, a blue-collar worker, do my best every day to pinch pennies and make ends meet. I can't relate to him at all. Why should I get involved? And yet those thoughts never came to mind. I mean, in a split second, no hesitation at all, Wesley Autry jumps into action. He jumps on the tracks and does his best to try to rescue Cameron. And it was anything but easy. I mean, here's Cameron laid on the tracks. He's still kicking and jerking because of the seizure. So trying to lift him up off the rails and get him back on the platform before that train arrives became an impossible task. So Wesley Autry realizes the only thing he can do, he can push Cameron between the planks on the track and just simply cover, hold him down, cover his body with his body as a train comes racing overhead with nothing but an inch or two to spare between Wesley's body and that train. But Wesley survived, and so did his friend. Next day, it's on the front pages of all the newspapers, New York Post, New York Times, all the TV channels. Subway Samaritan, the hero from Harlem. And yet in every one of the interviews, Wesley Autry kept trying to play down. Hey, don't make a big deal out of this. I just saw somebody in need, and, and I decided to help. I simply did what I felt was right. Now stop and think about that. Where did that instinct come from? I simply did what I felt felt was right. Where did that feeling, that feeling that Wesley Autry had in his heart, where did that feeling come from? It came from this. We are made in the image of God. We were created to care. We were made to help others, even when it's not easy and even when it's not convenient. We were wired up by our Creator to make a difference for others. And that's the truth. 
that Jesus is going to teach in this story that we're going to look at today. We call it the parable of the Good Samaritan. Take a look at this with me. I want, to, I want you to notice the story behind the story, to notice what was it that prompted Jesus to even tell this parable. So let's look at the background first. On one occasion, an expert in the law, and we're talking about God's law, so this is not a lawyer or an attorney like we would think of today. It's more like a professor from a Bible college. Here's somebody who makes his living studying and teaching Scripture. It's a highly trained professional, an expert. And the Bible says he stood up to test Jesus. Normally in that day and time, when, when you had a teaching environment, everybody sat down, even the teacher. But while they were teaching, if you had a question or concern, hey, I didn't quite catch that. Could we pause for a moment? Could you elaborate on that? I'm not sure I'm tracking with you. In that day and time, rather than raise your hand like we would today, the polite thing, the respectful thing to do, if you had a question or a concern, is you would just quietly stand up. And then you just wait for the teacher to call you. Hey, Jesus, this expert, he's got a question for you. But the Bible tells us here his question is not from a pure heart. His, his motives are anything but sincere. This expert, he's not here because he wants to know more about Jesus because he's seriously considering, hey, should I follow him or not? That's not even an option in his mind. This guy is here to stir up trouble. He's like a reporter at a press conference. He's trying to trap Jesus. He wants to trip him up. He wants to ask the kind of question that's going to get Jesus to say something stupid or something criminal, something that will keep all the others from wanting to listen to him anymore. He is here to make Jesus look bad. And in his attempt to do that, he asks this question. Teacher, meaning rabbi, it's a term of great respect. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? <laughs> right off the bat. You can see this is a foolish question. This guy, here he is trying to set Jesus up. He set himself up. I mean, if eternal life is like inheritance, and it is, and that's not something you can work for or earn, it's a gift. I mean, you're either part of the family or not, right? The only reason you can think about inheritance is because somebody else has already done all the work. Somebody else has earned all the riches. Somebody else, out of the goodness of their heart, has decided to share that wealth with you. Your name is in the will. You're in line for this inheritance because they put your name there. It's not anything that you do for them. It's something they decided to do for you. So here's this expert who was trying to make Jesus look bad. Now here's the perfect, because of the kind of question he asked. Here's the perfect opportunity for Jesus to turn the tables and humiliate this guy, just really put this guy in his place. I mean, Jesus knows the evil motives behind his question. So think of how Jesus could have responded. He said, wow, what a stupid question. You claim to be an expert and you ask me a question like that. I mean, think about it. Is it not the very nature of inheritance? You can't do anything to earn it. It's something that somebody else decided to, to share with you. They put your name in the will. They decided that at the time of their death, they wanted all this wealth to come to you. So uh, to you, all you do is either accept it or not. There's not a thing you can do to earn it, dummy. And of course, everybody else in class is clapping and cheering and saying, yeah, yeah, put that smart aleck in its place. But Jesus doesn't do that. Because Jesus is not here to hurt that man, even though that man is here to hurt Jesus. Jesus wants to reach this man. Here's this man of arrogance and pride, and he needs Jesus just as much as anybody else, but right now he doesn't see that. And here's Jesus trying to reach him. So watch it how, how Jesus tries to, the mercy that Jesus shows, how Jesus tries to draw this man in. He responds to his question with a question. He says, well, uh, what's written in the law? What's written in scripture? How do you read it? See, here's the problem. Here's why that expert, 
Why, why he's not seeing Jesus correctly. He doesn't read scripture correctly. He's not looking at it from the right angle. How do you read it? And of course, the expert, man, he loves this. He wants to show off to everybody how smart he is. So right away, he begins to quote from the Old Testament. First of all, he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, like the scripture we read earlier today. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And then he quotes from the book of Leviticus. And love your neighbors yourself. You know, the golden rule. You know, love others with the same intensity, the same level of concern as you would want them to love you. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly, meaning you answered well. Wow, that's a great answer. Do this and you will live, meaning you will really begin to live. Now, what does Jesus mean by this? Do this and you will live. Well, Jesus could be talking about do this perfectly. Love God in a perfect way. Love your fellow man in a perfect way. Live a perfect life and you automatically qualify for heaven. And right away, that expert and everybody else in the audience begins to kind of squirm because they know they've, they're not even close to living a perfect life. Nobody here is qualified to enter heaven. And maybe Jesus is just wanting to make them aware of that gap that you're not going to get there, not without God's help. But I think Jesus has something else in mind, too. I think Jesus is saying, hey, when you think of eternal life, don't just think of that as a blessing you only get at the very end of time. You know, you die and then you come into the next world and that's where you begin to live forever. Don't just think of eternal life in terms of quantity, a life that just goes on and on and on. No, when the Bible talks about eternal life, it's also thinking about quality, the quality of that life. It's a special kind of life. And this special kind of life is something you can begin to receive and experience right now. Why? When you enter into an active, engaging relationship with God. I mean, when you open up every part of your life to love God, love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when the Bible talks about loving Him with all your strength, it means love Him in every one of your activities. You open up every aspect of your life to show your love for God. Now you give God that opening, that opportunity where he can now share his life with you. But sadly, this expert is not here to get a blessing from Jesus. He just wants to have an argument. He wants to have an, a, a debate. He wants to show everybody how smart he is and how mistaken Jesus is. So the next verse we read, and wanting, he wanted to justify himself. See, one of the things that bugs this man and bugs a lot of the other religious leaders is Jesus always seems to hang out with the wrong kinds of people. The outcasts, the sinners. Hey, doesn't God's law teach us that we need to maintain some boundaries between the righteous and the unrighteous? Shouldn't we be keeping our distance from those kind of folks? And yet, Jesus, you seem to be hanging out with them all the time. What gives? So in an effort to put the ball back in his court, to put the pressure back on Jesus, the expert asks another question. Well, who is my neighbor? Hey, Jesus, I know how I'd answer that question. I know how I'd define it. But how do you define neighbor? And again, Jesus surprises him. Rather than just come back and confront, you know, everybody in the audience right now can sense that this conversation between the expert and Jesus is getting pretty tense and edgy. And rather than just come back like a preacher would and say, well, don't you know there's several different Greek works for love? And here are four reasons why you're wrong and I'm right. And just emotionally ramp everything up and inflame the situation to make this debate even more heated. No, instantly, Jesus just diffuses everything. He says, well, let me tell you a story. And the atmosphere instantly changes. Everybody begins to relax and just kind of let their guard down. Oh, it's just a story. You don't have to worry about it. It's just a story. See, Jesus is not here to win an argument. Jesus is here to show mercy, to 
try to reach this man's heart. And he, reach, he realizes if he just confronts him head on, that's just going to push him further away. So he tries to reach him from another angle. So he comes down to verse 30. And Jesus replies, well, let me tell you a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And that's literally how that road works. 17 miles between Jerusalem and Jericho. And the road drops him 3,600 feet. That road just winds around like a snake, winding around through all the hills and the caves. And as this man came down that road, he was attacked by robbers. The word robbers means men of violence. And right away, everybody in the audience, they're kind of nodding their head because they've been on that road before. And they know how dangerous it is. What Jesus is talking about here, this is familiar to them. Hey, people get mugged on that road all the time. And what this guy's doing here, taking this trip all by himself, so foolish. Man, he was just asking for trouble. It's his own fault that he got hurt. Now pause for a moment. You need to appreciate there are four scenes to the story that Jesus is telling. The first scene is this man taking the trip. Then in the second scene, he meets a priest. And then in the third scene, he meets a Levite. And then in the last scene, the fourth scene, he meets a Samaritan. But the one person who appears in all four scenes is the guy taking the trip, the guy that gets attacked and robbed. And who does this guy represent? We'll go back to the story before the story. He represents the expert, the expert in the Bible, the man who in his arrogance and pride foolishly thinks, I can do life all by myself. I don't need you, Jesus. I don't need anybody else. I'm smart enough to figure this out on my own. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And so he doesn't recognize he's this guy trying, foolishly trying to do life all by himself. And sooner or later, spiritually speaking, like the man in the story, he's going to find himself lying in a ditch. And then Who's going to be his good Samaritan? Well, the only one who's qualified to save him is Jesus. We'll come back to the story. This man, he not only gets robbed, other awful things happen to him. The last part of verse 30 says they stripped him of his clothes. They beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. And that expression half dead means this guy is so bad off that even if you try to help him, he might end up dying anyway. This situation just looks hopeless. But Jesus' point is this. Even though it looks hopeless, you still try help. The other significant thing here is he's stripped of his clothes. In that day and time, in that first century world, there in Israel especially, one of the ways you, you size people up, one of the ways you get a read on them and to try to determine what they're really like, you look at how they're dressed. Priest, peasant, hey, I can tell by the kind of garment you wear. And then you listen to the way they talk. Hey, you got that Latin accent. You must be from Rome. What are you doing on this side of the world? What are you doing here in Jerusalem? Or you speak that Aramaic with a twang. And you must be from Galilee, one of those hicks from the sticks. By the way they dress, by the way they talk, you can put them in a box and stereotype them and jump to all kinds of conclusions about them. But you can't do that with this man. Stripped of all his clothes, so beat up, he can't even talk. You can't tell just by looking at him. Is he rich? Is he poor? Is he educated, uneducated? You can't tell. And that's Jesus' point. Those kind of things shouldn't matter. Here's what matters. This is a human being. Here's somebody made in the image of God. Here's somebody who needs help. Who's going to respond? So he says a priest comes down the road. Here's somebody you expect to help. Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road. That expression going down is significant. It lets us know he's not coming from Jericho up to Jerusalem. He's coming from Jerusalem, meaning as a priest, he's already finished all his duties in the temple. So he doesn't have to worry about defiling himself, becoming unclean. Hey, what if the guy's already dead? I touch a corpse. That disqualifies me from serving him. Oh, he's already finished all his duties. He, does, he has no excuses. But the priest comes down. 
coming down the same road. And when he saw the man, clearly saw the man in his need, he passed by on the other side. He got as far away from him as he possibly could. So to a Levite, somebody else who works at the temple, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, wow, you talk about a, a turn, a surprising turn. A Samaritan, in the eyes of Jewish people, this is the bad guy. And the bad guy's going to be the hero? You see, this is exactly how the expert in the Bible looks at Jesus. He's like a Samaritan. He's the bad guy. That's the very reason he's here this day, to expose him in front of all these. You don't want to listen to somebody like that. And yet this is the Samaritan, the only one who can actually save his life. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. And it was more than just a feeling. He took action. Dr. Luke, the one who's writing this, recording the story of Jesus, he's a physician by trade. He's interested in these kind of details. And he will mention six specific things that this Samaritan will do for this man in need. And he went to him, and he bandaged his wounds. He poured on the oil and wine to help remove the infection. He put the man on his donkey so he could ride while the Samaritan walks. He brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And then the next day, because the Samaritan, he, he can do some things, but he can't do everything. I mean, he's got other responsibilities he has to attend to as well. So he's got to put him in somebody else's care. I, I, I brought him this far. Can you take him further? The next day, he brings out two denarii. That's enough money to take care of the next 20, 24 days. Hey, for the next three weeks, this should take care of all the food and lodging expenses like that. But know this. He gave it to the innkeeper. He said, but know this. You look after him. But when I return, you know I'm good for this. I'm here on a frequent basis. You know me. If other things have popped up in the meantime, you go ahead and take care of it and know this, that I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. He is going over the top in his generosity, going way beyond what anybody would have expected in his concern for this man. So Jesus turns to the expert and says, which of the three do you think was a neighbor to the man? Do you see how he's reframing the issue? He's been reading the Bible the wrong way. Don't ask who is my neighbor. That's not the right way to look at it. No, think of it. To whom? Can I be a neighbor? I can't be a neighbor to everybody, but to whom can I be a neighbor? Who was the neighbor here? And the expert and the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now this story that Jesus tells, I think it resonates because we see this happen all the time. Mid-1970s, Hugh Rudd was a, an anchorman for CBS News, and one night he got mugged right outside his apartment complex there in New York City. From 2.30 in the evening till noon the next day, he lay on the sidewalk. Eyes open, still conscious, but he was beat up so bad he couldn't move. All he could do was just lay there on the sidewalk and moan and mumble, help, help, please, somebody help me. All kinds of people went by. Late that night, people coming from the theater, having watched the play on Broadway, they saw him on the sidewalk, just hurried on by. The milkman, the guy delivering the newspapers, the UPS man, every one of them had deliveries to make. And they stepped right over him and stepped right back. Sorry, they heard a plea for help. They ignored it. Sorry, I got a job to do. Can't help you. It wasn't until noon the next day when a policeman saw him, came to his rescue. Hugh Rudd tells you, would tell you, when you go through an experience like that, it changes your perspective until you find yourself lying in a ditch and desperately needing mercy. Until you've been in a situation like that, you're not going to have the kind of heart that wants to help others when they're hurting. You know, you're the new kid in school. You just moved to town. Every other face in that room is a stranger to you. And at that moment, you recognize how desperately you need one of those people 
to become your friend. Or you're the new man on the job, the low man on the totem pole. Everybody else knows the ropes except you. And in that situation, you recognize how you need somebody to take you under the wings and explain a few things so you can get the hang of things too. I mean, always before, you've been able to take care of things yourself, but all of a sudden, something happens, and now you find yourself in a place where now you're going to have to rely on others. Recovering from a stroke, still can't drive a car, still not allowed to, need a ride to the doctor's appointment, who are you going to ask? Lost a job, getting behind in some payments, need help paying a bill, who are you going to turn to? Hit a rough spot in your marriage, and you don't have the first clue how to fix things, so who are you going to seek out for advice? See, until you've been to the other side of the road actually lying in that ditch, only then do you appreciate that need for mercy. And once you appreciate that, then when you're in a position to help, now you realize how important it is to make that response to help others who are hurting too. One last thing. Again, think of the story behind the story. Who is the Good Samaritan here? It's Jesus. And what did he do when he saw us lying in a ditch. He went to a cross. And there at the most inconvenient moment of his life, going through this indescribable agony, he's not just thinking about himself, he's thinking about us. Do you remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he made seven statements. He's honest about his pain. We hear Jesus cry out, I thirst. I mean, he's struggling. He's not pretending. This is hard. This is not an easy thing for him to go through. And then we hear Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The agony is real. The suffering is intense. I mean, by far, for Jesus, this moment of the cross is the most difficult moment of his entire existence. And yet of the seven statements that he makes on that cross, three of the statements have to do with other people. He turns to the thief on the cross and says, today, today. You're going to be with me in paradise. He turns to his mom, who has been traumatized by the awful things these Roman soldiers have done to her son. But he provides, hey, John, turns to his disciple. John says, John, take care of her. Treat her like she was your own mom, assuring his mom your future is provided for. And then he turns to the crowd, the very crowd that is mocking and ridiculing, and he prays for them. He prays, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Isn't that incredible? Out of his own pain and suffering, he is still taking care of others. Now, here's my point. We were made to be like him. The Bible says we're made in the image of God. What does that image look like? Jesus is the perfect example, the perfect display of that image. Even in the most difficult moment of his life on a cross, he realizes, I am created to care for others. So every 21 minutes when one of those interruptions pops up or every 21 days when you get hit with one of those emergencies, don't just shut other people down and say, hey, sorry, I got too much stuff going on in my own life. Can't help you out. Even when it's not convenient, remember the mercy that God showed to you when it was anything but convenient for him on a cross. Yes, we are human beings. And yes, we have limitations. We can't help everybody but we can help someone. And when you can help, do everything you can so that they can experience the mercy that God has shown to you. Let's pray.